Today on Sagittarian Matters, we talk about Sagittarian Matters, plus Vanport, Black Lives Matter, J.K. Rowling, and more. With my very special guest for our 201st episode, producer Chris Sutton. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters Social Distancing Studios in Los Angeles, California. We have a lot of show to get to today and a long intro, so I need to start right now. Friends, when I was 20 years old, I had a job delivering book fairs. Remember when Scholastic would come to your school and it was the best day of the year if you were a kid who loved to read? This is what I did for a local bookstore in Portland called A Children's Place. I tell you this because I want you to know when I was 20 years old, I got really into Harry Potter. From working around children's literature, I was deeply into Harry Potter. I went to the 10 a.m. showing of the first Harry Potter movie with a gross, fleshy um, lightning bolt taped to my head because I was such a fan of Harry Potter. I was in a band at the time. And we mostly wrote revenge songs about people we knew, but I decided I was so frustrated that J.K. Rowling had taken so long between books four and five that I would write a song, a joke song, that went, Writer's block, way to let down all the children of the entire world. J.K. Rowling. Little did I know, a scant 19 years later, she would tweet about trans women and let down all the children and adults of the entire world because she's a turf. Can you see the true face of evil in the Twitter discourse of one insecure, rich, cisgendered, white feminist? I don't like that she's besmirched the name feminist by attaching it to her horrible take. Can we say a few things? First thing I want to say, trans women are women. Trans men are men. J.K. Rowling doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about. And one wonders. I couldn't help but wonder, said Carrie Bradshaw. Why now? Why now, J.K. Rowling? Uh, There's a global pandemic. Hundreds of thousands of people are dying. Oh, uh, hey, JK, I'm not sure if you knew this, but also I saw a tweet that said her name's JK because her takes are so bad that she's got to be kidding. Anyway, Joe, JK, uh, did you notice that the entire world is coming together to support the Black Lives Matter movement? Did that cross your path at any point when you turned on your internet browser or like talked to literally any person? Did this feel like a really important time to make your terrible statement about a really vulnerable population? Uh, I, I just, it boggles the mind. I'm surprised nobody has done an expelling Armis spell regarding her Twitter or um, her internet connection. I'm not sure why Warner Brothers hasn't bound her so that she stops fucking with these books that that forged an entire generation of readers and of queer people and of social justice 
activists, like activists that have social justice organizations around some of the principles from her books. She's really, she's really fucking with the brand right now. I got to say, I mean, I know the brand isn't the important part. The important part is this. This podcast supports trans people. This podcast loves trans people and we will stick up for you. We do have your back. I don't know what to do with the Harry Potter universe right now. It has been important to me. It's currently pretty close to the trash can. But um, anyway, I just wanted to mention that because it, I don't, I'm sorry I'm even giving it more space, honestly, because there's a pandemic going on, but something even more important and pressing right now is the Black Lives Matter movement has, is, is world, a worldwide, we're having a worldwide moment and I wanted to tell you something that I read from Black Lives Matter Los Angeles co-founder Melina Abdullah, which is about things that you can do. Okay, segueing to that. This is from an interview I read with Melina Abdullah. There are three things everyone can offer, your voice, your body, and your resources. If your body is not available, then please share your voice and your resources. Amplify what Black Lives Matter is saying, even if it's as simple as tweeting out or posting on your page, defund the police. Even if it's something as simple as explaining to your family what defunding the police means. One of the greatest resources we received recently was a $500 Uber Eats gift card. The reason that's great is because Black Lives Matter has meetings and we need food at these meetings. If you have gift cards you aren't using, please give them to us. We'll make use of them. There is a need for sound systems also. You can donate things like that. Let me just say, she says, whatever it is you have, bring it to the movement. Anything, whatever it is. There's a lot that people can do. A lot of actions are online. There are a lot of people who are immunocompromised. So get involved. There are Twitter storms. There are times when they're asking everyone to call into the budget committee, to send emails to the budget committee in your city. The last thing that I wanted to tell you that I read in this article with Melina Abdullah is this. Don't go in the house. Don't let them lure you with crumbs and tell you now it's time to go home. We need to stay in these streets. And also we need to organize. It's really important to plug into organizations. Okay, end of quote. This is Nicole talking. If there's an organization or an account or something that you've been following, some place you've donated to that you felt really good about, um, you know, like a bailout fund, like Black Lives Matter, like a fund for black women and girls to have therapy, uh, a fund, any, anything, please commit to making a monthly donation so they can continue to be funded and supported after this moment has, you know, after things have changed if, or, you know, I don't, after people are no longer in the streets or things have changed or something else flashy happens that gets people's attention, make sure that if you're feeling this moment and you're becoming educated about prison abolition, about defunding the police, about institutionalized racism, that you're able to put your money or your time or something into sustaining this because this is a marathon. This is not a foot race. It's a marathon. And there's a moment right now where there's a lot of change happening really fast, but there's going to be a lot of organizations that need your support in the long run. Okay. Thank you for listening. Uh, I want to say that the cops who killed Breonna Taylor still have not been arrested. So if you haven't reminded anyone of that lately online, there's a suggestion for you. I hope you enjoy the show and we'll talk to you soon. 
Chris Sutton is the producer of this podcast, Sagittarian Matters. He has played in the bands Gossip, Dub Narcotic Sound System, The Dirt Bombs, Chain in the Gang, Hornet Leg, Spider in the Webs, The Hooded Hags, COCO, and more. Chris currently has a radio station on X-Ray FM called Record Lections with Hell Books. You can listen to it online or Tuesdays from 10 to 11 p.m. You can find Chris on Instagram at hellbooks. That's H-E double hockey sticks books, but on Instagram it's with two S's. Now please enjoy my talk with producer of this podcast and very esteemed friend, Chris Sutton. Well, in 2015, I think I put a call out. I was like, I want to do a podcast. And you just jumped up and were like, oh, yeah. Right, right. Well, I mean, that was like, it seemed like the most obvious thing. Because I am a bit, I was a big podcast fan then. And uh, um, I mean, we already talked about this before. I mean, our get-togethers, like just the conversations that happened whenever we would hang out. Like, like we went on tour together. You know, we have mutual friends, you know, where we'd have hangouts and like, the conversations there would be like, wait, I listen to these podcasts where the conversations are not nearly as interesting, but I'm still listening. So let's have something like that, you know? And even now, even like the way the podcast world has developed where it's sort of like the technology and everything is really available to people. And there's like all these organizations organizations that need podcasts. Uh, there still isn't one I feel as, as interesting as this one. Oh my God. Thanks, producer Chris. Oh, it's true. It's true. I mean, it's kind of like what I would want, especially like, you know, some, you know, our friend group or whatever, something I would want to hear, like people who are speaking deeply about, you know, deeply and emotionally about like things that are real, you know, that's the best thing about like, you know, you and Brandy's relationship is a perfect example of that. You know, that's what makes those conversations so good when she's on like, I mean, it's amazing that she, I mean, she, she makes candles. She makes these amazing candles that we should all appreciate. But at the same time, she has a lot of wisdom that I feel it probably has, isn't tapped in as much as it should be. I, I want you to know I've had this impulse to like have a radio station or have a radio show. Like since I was a kid, I'm sure so many people we know had a cassette recorder. You know, when you're making a mixtape, you would make your own kind of radio thing in between. We'd be like, you're listening to WNJG, Nicole George's radio. And I, even when I was 18, I went on this thing called the Primate Freedom Tour, where it was like an activist tour that went around the country protesting primate research all around. And I was trying to record people because I thought it was so fascinating. I was going to make an audio documentary. And when I left, I, there was a rumor that I was a narc. People had thought I was a narc because I kept trying to interview people and be like, can you tell me about yourself? And these were all people that were part of like the Animal Liberation Front, Earth Liberation Front. Everybody had a criminal record. Everybody was getting arrested. And they were like, that person, Nicole, I think she was a narc. Like, she was a little too friendly. She was a little too curious. She was trying to record us with that talk girl, Junior. It was like the thing that... Weren't she straight edge, too? Like, that's the other thing. Me? Right. Like, weren't she straight edge? Like I was straight like, edge adjacent. Like yeah. I've, I've never been... I've never been a big imbiber of anything. But, I, yeah, I was very straight edge adjacent. Right, right. So I feel like that <laughs> sort of makes people uh, suspicious... Like, wait, she doesn't do any drugs either? She'd ask me these questions? Yeah. Oh, also, I would, um, like, pluck my eyebrows at every stop. We were camping. We were camping for the whole summer. We were going all around. Like, we would be, I'd be sleeping in this, like, 
gross bus that we were in. I would wake up with just pools of sweat in my belly button because it was so hot. And then I would just go and just pluck my eyebrows. And my eyebrows are actually, for listeners who don't know, I am a victim of 1990s eyebrow abuse where I now forever have the smallest eyebrows. Zero eyebrows in certain lines. You have pretty healthy eyebrows. I've seen smaller. Really? Well, because you you know, know, you know, they're drawn on. Huh? Beth doesn't have any eyebrows anymore. Well, yeah, because she's gone full, full, all the way and shaved them off. (laughs) So, I mean, there's that. I think my grandmother doesn't have eyebrows either, but it's on purpose. Oh, my God. Well, so, yeah. I mean, all that is to say, it's, it's a lot of maintenance to make it look like I have eyebrows, is all I'll say. You know, if you catch me someday, you come knock on the door, I'm just waking up, you're going to you're gonna be surprised. <laughs> okay, so Producer Chris, we went live in 2016. I was in Virginia. You were in Portland. And here we are, 2020, quarantined in our homes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, which luckily uh, in this day and age, you know, you can do that now. Like you don't, and nobody has to be in the same place anymore. It's kind of coronavirus kind of happened at a pretty opportune time. You know, like a lot of people, I mean, service workers are really out, you know, for sure. I mean, it's a bummer for people who live by like conversing with people. You feel that at Trader Joe's. I mean, that's like, Trader Joe's is really weird. Like I don't, you you have one in LA, I'm sure, you know, (laughs) that you go to, but that's like the most, uh, you feel the anxiety you know, when you go to the store, that's the kind of only time when I'm really just like, Oh, this is kind of fucked up around here, you know? Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah. You know, for people who really love to talk, I mean, we've we kind of lucked out podcasting. Keep just keep going, you know? Okay. What questions do you have for me? I have questions for you. Well, I was going to say how, you know, I mean, to be, we, we are celebrating our 201st episode, but I was uh, sort of, there's a lot of like current events happening, swirling around us at the same time. Um, my what I think about you, I mean, you know, my situation where I'm living in now, like I'm with this amazing partner and I have this daughter who's like kind of giving little gifts every day. Uh, and uh, I live in this house with these dogs. So <clears throat> there's a lot of like support here. I often wonder, I've asked a couple people about this, like people like you who are careering right now and you're in an apartment and you're in Los Angeles. So I wonder how that, how, how are you navigating this current world right now? I never thought this day would come. When I was a younger person, I was involved in a black socialist party called Uhuru and I was very into reading about black power movements of the 60s and 70s. But then whenever you read about those, you read about the FBI killing everybody. Like you're like, oh my God, look, they were doing a free breakfast program and defend. And then you're like, and then those people all got murdered in their beds. Or you're like, oh, look what they were doing in their community, these black leaders. And they're like, and then the FBI bombed their house and shot everybody who came out of the house. Like, and so that was my experience of that. And so this happening right now in a real way where that could have true change, like like the Minneapolis Police Department, like these things actually happening so based it's a precinct though. Yeah. But and then but then but then, <laughs> then being like happened, just being that like, even happened during Rodney King, you know. 
Yeah, like, yeah, but like, yeah, seeing like Rodney King and everybody being like, oh my God, everyone's crazy. Can you believe everyone's rioting? But now it's like, no, people are right. People aren't rioting. People are protesting and they're not going to stop. And then that, and then people actually using social media to affect their local governments and like how much money the police are getting and educating people about the 13th Amendment. I never thought this day would come. And I am very stoked to support it in every way. Right. But, you know, at the same time, like we're the ideas are up. I mean, my thing is like, does it extend beyond like the next few weeks? I mean, I mean, the George Floyd thing, like it happened at the best or worst possible time, depending on how you're looking at it. You know, everybody's at home. Everybody's already pissed off. Everybody's already like, you know, there's no no movies being made. There's no sports being played. You know, nobody has an escape like every day is like all you have to do is pay attention to you know trump briefings every day which either enrage you or confuse you or whatever you know and then to sort of see this go down like i think everybody's kind of in a place where they can kind of like they can you know seize it in their mind and are able to but you know like what we were talking about before it's like you know everybody has this time to think about it and react and like make these adjustments but is this going to continue on past these next few weeks? And also, like, this other thing I read today where it's just like, oh, well, now we're getting more cases now. <laughs> so it's starting to spike because everybody's been outside. So I don't know. I don't know what's, uh, what's going to be the end result there. It's, it's, I, I, keep my, I want my, uh, my Stephen Hawking time machine where I go into the future and see what ha- happens because – a part of me is just like if we if we reelect Trump again, like like what the fuck is that? You know, it's like at this point with all the stuff happening, if we put the same system in again, like what is that like? There's nowhere to go. Like we can go to Canada or Australia, I guess. You know, but like what? Like if this does it. If there isn't any action and we're in the same place next November, is it's just going to be super weird. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. Like what could possibly happen? I am having a hard time even letting my brain play that, play that, go through that exercise of him winning. Yeah. And you know, all these polls are coming out like, Oh, he's falling behind here and there. It's just like, we got the polls last time. Like we thought we were in the clear last time, you know, based on these polls. So I don't believe anything. Like, even one of the news sources, like, oh, like, Biden's ahead. Like, no, I can't believe shit that you say anymore. Like, I'm not going to even pay attention until that day. And, you know, it's like, it's just going to be, <laughs> I, I really I really don't know. I mean, and it's like every day now. I haven't really felt like this ever, really. I mean, even since, like, the 90s, even when Rodney King happened or these other instances. I mean, I've you know, I'm in this Portland bubble, you know, where, you know, black people are either on one side where if you're artistic, if you're lucky to be artistically minded or a punk or a musician, you're, you, you're kind of in this community that kind of respects you and like, Hey, he's, he's black. Let's get him in here. Um, or you are a black person that has been here for generations and nobody's even paying attention to you at all. As a matter of fact, they are afraid of your part of town and your history is being erased, you know. So Portland's a really weird place like that. But what's promising is like, you know, places like Seattle, there's that autonomous zone. Um, so they actually dismantled the police in Minneapolis. So like, 
we'll see, we'll see what happens, you know, like to, to, to put like this uh, uncertainty that we already had into this higher level of uncertainty. I mean, there's this weird culture chess match that's happening and you don't know what the end game is, you know? How does it feel like this feeling that you said you're feeling right now that feels very particular that you didn't even feel during Rodney King? Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I've kind of like prided myself on keeping people around me who are like generally accepting of all people, you know, it's like, oh, like I, I really, uh, I'm proud of being black, you know, I'm very pro black. I'm, you know, I feel like, you know, my art and my music, whatever I do, that's always a part of what I'm doing. Um, my blackness, but, um, to be, to have a magnifying glass on me, which I may have had the whole time, but now I'm sort of conscious on it on a daily basis, you know, at work, outside, passing by a cop in the street, going to the supermarket, like, um, you know, people are, <laughs> before people were jumping out of the way so they didn't get into my airspace. And now they're kind of like, you know, oh, wait, I don't want to bump into this person because he's black and it's BLM times right now. It's like, I feel a safe way. I feel that, you know, there's a little extra kind of like, oh, hey, we're cool. Here's forty three ninety five for your groceries. Like, we're cool. You know, it's like. They're trying to show you that they support you? Right, right. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, and there's this kind of trend around town where people are like, there's these people driving super slow, like in a caravan around town. And they're like honking really loud. And there's BLM, like, you know, uh, stuff all over their car. And, you know, you appreciate it. It's almost always white people. It's like white teenagers and their grandparents. But if they see me drive by, they're like, hey, <laughs> check it out. You know, so. <laughs> Do you feel objectified? <laughs> right, right. But, you know, at the same time, like, you know, I'm, I'm a performer. So being objectified, having people pay attention to me, that's, you know, something I've always striven up. Uh, you know, strive for, you know, I love like, Hey, look at me. I'm different. I'm cool. But to have that like hyper realized kind of thing on top of that is, uh, it, I, you know, I like to think about other things, you know, uh, throughout my day and now, uh, my race and how I feel about it is, is, is constant. It sounds exhausting. It is. It is. And it was exhausting before. I mean, I had my entire life has been having to compartmentalize other things just to kind of go through uh, my daily life and make sure that I surround myself with people who accept me for who I am uh, and, you know, maybe who understand me a little bit. Um, and, and it's really important. I mean, the, the whole point of this movement is to have uncomfortable conversations with yourself and other people. Uh, but this flip has been both entertaining. It's hard to know what to talk about because it's very enjoyable on, on an entertainment standpoint, like to see white people squirm, to see like corporations like like take on with the wind off of their streaming partner or or like, you know, wear kente cloths in the Senate. Like to see all of that is really funny and interesting. And, you know, to have people at work like, hey, you OK? It's like, OK, yeah, I can take advantage of that a little bit. But at the same time, like that, that isn't something that I really wanted to do, like to, to have the magnifying glass on me all the time. And I think that the main thing about it is realizing that it's always been there, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going through my life and doing my things, but like, oh, people have been thinking about this a lot, you know, 
So I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's a bittersweet. I don't, it's hard to know how to answer it when people ask me that question. Today's episode is brought to you by Leo Fitzpatrick, Kaya Wilson, Jane Pyack, Elise Miller, Leah Engel, Sam Cohen, Emily Helmus, Jill Pruitt, Maria Turner Carney, Robert Daniel, Bridget Sweet, Michelle Lemoyne, Mary Pinson, Jill, Jill Soloway, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, and Christy Herod. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, that's your choice, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got a Venmo. Hell Books on Venmo. That's H-E double hockey sticks books. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's speaking voice. I do get frustrated when people paint with a broad brush. Portland does have a lot of white people, but then there are also a lot of people of color and black people there too, which, you know, and people that grew up there that were there way before the white people, which, you know, from my, my senior citizens in particular that I worked with that lived through Vanport, that lived through so many of the things that now people in Portland are like, Zutalar, can you believe it? You know, this history happened. But still the same, that that Vanport stuff is also like, like people aren't really talking about it either. I mean, the only thing I really saw about it was on OPB once. Do you know that I made a comic about Vanport? Yeah, totally. But I mean, at the same time, I mean, like, you know, my friend Bobby is like, he has this whole like campaign where he's trying to dig up music from like the 80s. You know, there's this rich, uh, like African-American, like musical history, you know, where there's all these records and like artists came out like the late 70s and early 80s. It's completely lost to history. Like nobody ever talks about it. But he's like, he has to fight for it. And like, he's contacting people that are like, oh, we don't care. We either don't care, or we've never heard of it, and we don't understand it. And so you really fear. And even in, in, in the way Portland is now, I mean, like the Portlandia thing, like the, of this whole, uh, this, uh, um, this persona that uh, Portland has had since I moved here. Like, I, you know, honestly, I was sort of part of the migration, I'm part of the Portlandia movement. And um, ever since then, it's like, okay, we're going to be like, you know, uh, really good coffee and, you know, independent beers and organic food and all this other stuff. And like, whereas like there's previously, you know, people that are older that always talk about that, like before 2005, 2002 or whatever, Portland was a completely different place. You know, it it was, you know, it was like my own private Idaho. It was like a wasteland, you know. And, uh, and that included black people. And even then, even when people talk about Portland history, then it's like old bordellos, old strip clubs, like junkies, like Jim Jarmusch movies and stuff. They're not even talking about the black experience, you know, or what went on, you know, it's almost like it didn't exist. And nationally, it's like, you know, these people are fighting for it, but it's still like fading away. <clears throat> like, it's, it's weird. Portland is, is fucking weird. It is, it is weird. Well, I, I was thinking that, yeah, living in a place with so many young white transplants, it's probably like there are more people that are like, oh, hey, Chris. Uh, just, 
I don't I don't know. I just yeah. I'm thinking about like, you know, like people in Portland like want to be so politically good and they want to show that they're anti-racist, but they don't have that many opportunities to do it to people that actually experience racism. So then right. they see you and they're like, "Chris!" Yeah, totally. And then and, that's and a lot cool. for you to take on, for you to be like, "Wow, great. So many intentions, so many good intentions at once. Wow." Right. But the flip side of it is that what's happening is a protest bring out the worst in the worst too. So you have like footage of like, you think of Portland, it's like, Oh, we're all drinking coffee and it's all cool and democratic up here. But then you have like lines of like police and like riot gear, like running people over like an hour before curfew or like, like, uh, you know, hurting people into Pioneer square and then bombing it with tear gas. You know, it's like, that's the other side of it. It's like, Oh, actually, you know what? There's a bunch of dicks here too. It's actually super racist here. Uh, but we just kind of covered it up with, uh, you know, a, a cool TV show and a feminist bookstore and, uh, you know, some really good coffee. But there actually is this underlying racism. That's why black people are disappearing. Uh, the black history of Portland is disappearing because there actually is a systemic racism here that does exist that nobody talks about because Fred and Carrie are really funny, you know. Yeah. <laughs> The Portland police have been like that for so long. They've upheld, the Portland police have been known for being brutal and have upheld white supremacy for a very long time. Right. Yeah. And like what you're finding out about is like how much that, and you know, there's been all these like press conferences by the heads of the police chiefs that are so angry about whatever's going on. And you just see it in their eyes, like how they, they just flabbergasted that you would even question like what they're trying to do. And the thing is that they're going by this, this general idea that they're necessary. You know, it's like, Hey, like this place is going to like the world is going to devolve into chaos. If you don't have a police force, you know, or you don't, or you have less of it, a police force than we have, you know? And like, there's all this, all this discussion, which is really positive about, Hey, well, you know, the reason why people are like this is because there's this overwhelming police presence you know there is this kind of like law and order hammer that's coming down all the time and people are reacting against it you know um i don't know if you saw like a, uh you know kamala harris which is turning out to be one of my favorite politicians <clears throat> she's like kind of my i was a big elizabeth warren person but now i'm like she's got to be the veep man it's got to be the veep that's a slam dunk veep right now especially in this day and age. But she had this whole thing right away about, and she's pro-cop. I mean, she's, she's actually criminalized marijuana. She did all this stuff. I know. But, is, uh, she, is she kind of trying to, like, undo some of the... Well, she, she went on The View, and she did this huge defund the police thing that was, like, totally made sense and completely explained why the movement's even happening, you know? Oh, my God, I love that. Um, you know, and just, like, mainly just focusing on, like... <clears throat> You know, uh, well, it's not about like getting rid of the police. It's about moving the budget to things that people have been wanting for a long time. And the thing is like, okay, you give all the money to the police and not enough to mental health. And so there's these crazy people in the street that the police have to arrest, you know? And so, you know, it does make a lot of sense. And it's a really radical idea. I mean, even somebody like me who isn't a pro police fan at the same time, like the idea of like, whoa, like defunding the police, you know, that's such an interesting idea. And like 
what's that? Uh, this is a town. I forget where it is where they've been doing that already. Well, there is a town where there was like no police and like they have like X amount of like altercations and stuff like that. So I don't know. I mean, you want to think that people are, are, uh, are, it's promising that, you know, we're all like critical thinkers who are able to kind of push through this, but you know, we still elected Trump, you know? So there's obviously like this intrinsic thing, this chimpanzee attitude where, people do want a dictator you know which is weird that is weird have you talked to your daughter at all about what's going on she's pretty young i mean she's pretty young um you know it's it's, basically i mean there is she's not really absorbing a lot of stuff she hasn't had a lot of like negative interactions with people and especially now in the last three months like there's no daycare or anything like that. So, I mean, she's not, we're not really running into anybody as far as that's concerned. And, it's, and and that's actually kind of a thing I thought about. It's like when she gets older, when she starts getting into society, is she going to be viewed as a black person or a white person? You know, because I don't know, she seems ethnic to me, you know, but who knows what other people are going to see, you know? So, but at the same time, I mean, I'm, I'm very confident. I mean, her parents are very well read and we're, we're really up on stuff and super supportive. So I'm not really worried about that. You know, like my, my take is if, uh, you know, if your family base, like if you have the people that have that support behind them, you know, they're able to go through the world no matter what's happening. So that's kind of what I want to set up for her because racism is not going to go away. As a matter of fact, if he doesn't get reelected, it's going to be worse. I think because now you're going to have like, it's going to become this malicious style where, these people, these right-wing people that are now feel uh, (laughs) again, they're marginalized again, you know, and it's just going to become worse. You can have all the secret stuff. The KKK has probably kind of become stronger. It's just um, it's hard to know what to do. Um, But we are chimps. We're chimps. We were watching Lion King uh, yesterday and I was thinking about that Scar hyena situation and I was like, that's totally what's happening. I don't even remember. I'm so sorry. The last time I saw Lion King was not that recently. What I did go see the Lion King Broadway show when I was in Richmond, Virginia, featuring many puppets. But um, will you remind listeners what that oh, okay. dynamic well, is? Well, uh, well, I mean, you know, so the whole thing about Lion King is that you know Simba is the rightful heir to the throne. Mufasa uh, is, uh, um, you know, he's the king, and then Scar is like the evil uncle who comes up and he gets the hyenas together. Which I'm not really big because I like hyenas. Too, so, but they're too. they're the villains in the in the movie. So they're uh, the hyenas and him take over, and there's this whole scene where it's just like this is the new age where hyenas and lions work together, and everybody's like so bummed out. They all hang their heads. There's just music and like you know, it's like this whole sort of thing, and then you know, like Simba has to come back and and, and take over. But that whole feeling that. You know, just that when he's making the announcement, when he's just like, Scar is like, oh, I'm the new king. And then the look on every lion's <laughs> face when the hyenas are coming in, you're just like, that's what it was like when Trump got elected. You know, it's like everybody was like, Ugh. Hi, listeners. It's me, Nicole. If you would like to support me and Ponyo, in particular our comics and animal illustrations, 
go to patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges. And for as little as $2 a month, you can have access to hundreds of pages of otherwise unpublished diary comics. For the price of one cold brew plus tip, you can become an honorary Sagittarian. And for the price of two vegan cupcakes or two vegan donuts, you can become a Ponyos Friend Club member, at which point you really start raking in goods, including new buttons. Check it out. Patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges. Um, producer Chris. Yes. Let's talk about the two. It's our 201st episode. Yes. Do you, do you have any wishes for the next hundred episodes or is there anything you want to say about the previous one to 200 episodes? Well, what I really like about the last hundred, I feel like there's been a very, uh, there's been a nice stride going on with the regulars. Uh, I really want to highlight, you know, people like Morgan, Beth Pickens, you know, uh, Brandy, people like that. Um, I, I feel there's a rapport that you have. There's a style that you have in, uh, conversationally that is uh it's easing in you have a way it, you're naturally uh going through subjects and uh the the relate the people that you ch- we've chosen that have been chosen to be on the, uh on the show have uh the conversations have been really 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 good you're you're getting better and better as a journalist for lack of a better word um and that's kind of that's the big thing especially in the last hundred episodes where uh, when you talk to somebody, it's very succinct, and the people that are there—I mean, you guys just nail out of the park. I mean, I—I I mean, I, we talked about this a hundred episodes ago, but like personally for me, a lot of the episodes are self-help for me. Like, especially with somebody like Beth Pickens, like she's actually really pushed me through some moments. You know, some of the stuff she's said and done. You know, she's to me, she's like an asset. She's an asset to society. You know, and I mentioned Brandy before, uh, like Brandy is like this, she's almost like Yoda in this way where like, oh, you know, there's actually a lot, she could help a lot of people if that were tapped into, you know, and I'm glad to sort of be part of a conduit to kind of get her, um, you know, her word out. Um, you know, another thing too, especially like uh, since coronavirus happened, we've gotten a lot of like, uh, really good feedback, even on my end with donations, like people sending messages with donations and uh, the podcast has helped them out, not even just in a self-help way, but having like a, a friendly, smart voice that's talking to them every week um, and bringing somebody on with them that's also empathetic and knowledgeable. So oh, that's so uh, nice to hear. That's been, that's been growing and it just keeps getting better all the time, you know, so. I want to say last week, I just had a moment where I was like, I had a moment of just to tie in podcast current with BLM. I just had a moment last week where I was like tired of hearing white people talk about their takes on racism. And I was like, yes, I want to be here for the podcast and use it for as a platform, but I need to figure out what that means. And I didn't just want to be another white person taking up space. I just wanted to elevate a different podcast that had, that was actually just like black people talking about their own experience, not be me being like, I paid too much for these prunes. And by the way, I just want to let you guys know that I think racism sucks. Like I just needed a second to be like, what's our best way to go forward in this moment to be helpful to the community, to use the resources that we have. 
And so with that in mind, what, so we're talking kind of about the powers of the podcast um, and the powers of like the past hundred episodes. Yeah. I, I really love giving advice on the podcast. I love Beth mm-hmm. Pickens advice, getting to talk to these people and answer these advice questions, like the repetition of it kind of, it also is helpful for me. Like just remembering these things, like remembering, like having a critical view of capitalism, but also remembering that we need to take care of ourselves and survive within capitalism while that's what's going on is helpful for me. The kind of more self-helpy moments that we have when we talk about like romance and breakups and boundaries and stuff is really, it's helpful. The repetition of anything is really helpful for me. It helps reform my brain to be like, yes, I am this kind of person. Right. And I think even if it's something that like has been said before, um, I think, you know, and this is a characteristic of, of any advice show is that even if it's been said before or advised on before, it, it's nice to hear that again. You know, you hear these reinforced uh, positive ideas for people. Um, and, um, you know, that's I don't know. It's, I'm proud of the podcast in that way. Like it is, a, you know, it's not like. I mean, like, I, I, I listen to all these different podcasts and it's either it's people being too serious or too goofy or completely off the mark or, uh, like, I don't know. I mean, I feel it's, it's necessary to have people uh, just kind of speaking for real. And, like, you have – you're very opinionated. You have a lot of stuff that you like to say and you do say. And I, I think the messaging that I'm getting back from people is, like, like what a podcast is supposed to do is like they lock into this person's world and this person is at least enriching them or encouraging them in one way or another. Uh, and I, I think it's useful. Like, you know, everything, uh, like the people that you bring in, you're, you're trying to benefit somebody or, or, or create a world like with Morgan, for example, like Morgan is, you guys tend to skew more food, food-based kind of things and that's really really important like just people you know not that people people are really turned like tuned into veganism but maybe the they might have a different idea about chickpeas after listening to morgan's enthusiasm because it is enthusiastic i mean it just kind of bursts it bursts out and she's she comes in on fire like you're like you're like well, Morgan, welcome to the podcast she's like i'm so glad to be here here are the types of things that i got at my job let's cook them now and it's like oh that's great she's like that's have you ever of- tried a salad <laughs> right and there is there is outlets for that there's plenty of outlets for activism and, and people need to hear these discussions but it's also especially since everybody's quarantined and there is like kind of a lot of depression going around and stuff like that it's just kind of nice to be in somebody's world, whether it's kind of talking about making bread or something like that, you know, uh, or like, you know, having Brandy teach you how to love or something like that. Or you know, one thing I want to say, there's a, a couple of moments that, that, that Beth Pickens really benefited me as like being an artist, you know, and listening to her is that she was really sort of stressing on like, not like not taking this time to stress about putting out your masterwork I think there was kind of a general idea of that. And that was something I was really feeling, you know, it's like, oh, well, I have this time. I'm not supposed to go anywhere. Maybe I got to be making something. But the problem with this pandemic is that there isn't like an end date. It's like, okay, everything's going to be done by June 25th. Like it really isn't. Like people want it to be done, but it's not going to be. And the next time there's going to be a live show or whatever, 
who knows? My job is like helping out independent artists, like uh, put their music out digitally. And like they're putting it out and they're trying to make music, you know, trying to make money like through their music, like online or through YouTube or something like that. But there's so much uncertainty, you know, uh, a big, uh, I, I keep on thinking, what was that? Um, I forgot her name. You interviewed her. She's a musician from Marissa Paternoster. Yes. That was really revealing as well. I think, I don't think people realize that people who have made music their entire career or their entire, where they're making music, it's totally in question right now, you know, everything. Totally. You know, and as somebody that works at a job, I mean, I'm luckily to still have my job or whatever, or work at 40 hour week, my partner, like Karen still gets to go to work and we're able to pay our bills. But like, seven years ago when it was just gossip if this happened like what the fuck i don't even know what i would be able to do you know it was serendipitously like you know i'm in a place where i really have a solid foundation and you know like kind of normal shit going on i mean like i don't even know i mean the next live show i'm actually wondering when that's gonna happen and like and i'm having these thoughts too it's like what's it gonna feel like like being in a crowd of people seeing somebody perform is that going to happen in the same way you know in the future you know it's like we can't really even think about normal until there's a vaccine that works and yeah. that's like how long ago, how long from now is that so everything to me it's like one day at a time even more so you know the one day at a time for me is like I can't trip about what's going to happen with coronavirus because all I need to do is wash my hands and stay away from people and then one day at a time being like okay can I or can I not go to a protest today? If I'm not, what's the other thing I'm going to do to move this thing forward that I care about? It's just like everything is one day at a time and just be like, okay, I can do one thing for 12 hours that would drive me berserk if I had to do it for my whole life. So like having to stay inside and just bleach my own bot, my whole body and just like engage by, I don't know, giving money to like what whatever or like calling some godforsaken senator or something like that's just today's task that's just today right and so how how are you feeling like i mean you're bleach you you feel you have to bleach your body every time you come in uh from the outside world you know do you feel is there a warrior spirit like when you go out into the world is that sort of in your mind you're like oh that person person not wearing a fucking mask you know like oh my god what's that person thinking you know it's like i'm bleaching my body you know it's like oh like because it's, it's weird in Portland it's really weird because people I mean I think there's getting more cases and stuff but there really is like an air around here up here where people aren't really sure if it's actually happened you know? this is why I did not this is why I felt really weird about going to protests and then driving directly like down the five to Portland um, this is one of the reasons I just got a COVID test at Dodger Stadium yesterday which wow. perhaps if I get the results by tonight, I can reveal my status on air. But I wanted to get a COVID test before I went there because I know you guys are living in, compared to LA, a la-la land, I think. Or just like yes. LA is like, because I'm living in a place that has more density. You know, I live in an apartment complex next to apartment complexes. So that's a lot of people. That's not like a house with a yard and right. my neighbors across. This is like... I have to go through three different neighbors to get to the street. And then there's people walking down the street with or without masks. And I do have a little bit of like a battle embattled mentality, which isn't serving me here and is making me feel like a total 
rager psycho. And so I was like, I want to go to Portland where I, cause I just right now, you know, I already, I think we all know that in the best of times, I have a lot of judgments about my like Coachella fire festival neighbor people. There's so many, I wake up from a nap, I go to get coffee and I'm like, is everybody stoned? Is every person stoned and straight? And that's my normal. And so imagine that. Plus I'm like, you fucking disease vectors. You're going to like drive your Porsche SUV to the weed shop and then cough on me. And then I'm going to get coronavirus after being alone for three months. Like I just really spin out. And so it's time for me to go rent a house by myself in a place with trees where I can sit in the backyard and be outdoors without feeling like a hateful person. Cause I don't, at my core, I'm not a hateful person, but the current situation here, we have, I think the second highest Corona rate in the nation, probably after New York. And, um, people are tired of quarantining. And so they're pretending like the pandemic's over and walking around together and at restaurants with no masks. <laughs> oh man. But it's not over, yeah. Chris. Nothing's happened well, except for everyone's tired of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I feel like, like it, you know, going back to the George Floyd thing. I feel like that it came at a time when people were starting to get to the breaking point, you know. And then this thing happened, and it kind of gave people just sort of burst out. I mean, it was so necessary, but at the same time, like we don't even know like the after effects of it until you know, who knows, months, months from now, like, did you read, but did you read that thing from epidemiologists where they all signed this letter that said that racism was more life-threatening than coronavirus? And so they understood that people needed to do what they needed to do to end racism. But, but like, I don't know. It's, you know, whenever I hear like studies about racism done by white people, it's just like, really, even if they're a scientist, even if there's all that stuff going around, I mean, it's like, as you know, like the races, the way they are, I mean, you know, everything is so complicated, you know, and I think like the way the government looks at every race is just like numbers, like, you know, job percentages and stuff like that. So um, even that is just a little disappointing, like having that, like, you know, magnifying glass on like a certain sect of society, um, you know, just as a punk. I mean, like I really did. I mean, I'm so literal. You know, like I took punk so literally, like it was like, hey, everybody can do this thing and we're all should be badasses and try to make art. Like, and I took it literally. And then to realize that everybody, but I've always done that with veganism, anything like that. It's like, oh, you should be vegan. Okay. All right. I'm cutting all this shit out. And then you come around and you talk to person, talk to the person who inspired you. And they're just like, oh, well, I mean, I eat fish, you know, like, except but, for me. Oh. It's like, oh, right. I eat sugar still you're just like what what am i doing you know and then the same thing with this sort of thing like oh well i just thought everybody was on the same page and then you're like well everybody wasn't on the same page like either weren't thinking about it at all they're thinking about it way too much and like both sides really don't understand you know so it's weird it's weird i mean i don't know under i don't know how they would you know but you know i don't know i mean a a rich white person why why would why would they think anything else? Why would they think there's a systemic racism? You know, their lives are fine. You know, and everybody who has come in contact with them know, know what, what their race is, no matter what their race is, uh, has been sucking up to them or not revealing their personal feelings. 
about them because you know hopefully they're catching some sort of fortune from this person like you know to be famous or rich like you don't really know what anybody's thinking of you probably you know even your own family you know so you can't really expect those people to feel the same way but you know and that's a little disappointing when you're just like when you try to fill your life full of hope and then you think about like how, how most people are are pretty selfish and they're not really like thinking about you know the best possible things for other people it's just uh it's hard it's been a real roller coaster for me you know as somebody that pays attention to social media loves entertainment and loves to pay attention to the stuff as much as possible to see how off the mark most people are it's just like ah really this is the way it is what a fucking bummer you know but at the same time if they're people are able to burn down a police precinct you know if they're able to dismantle like the you know um you know their you know the police or they're able to have these kind of forums where they can tell like senators off and stuff and like really sort of implement change then that's really really that's hopeful as well you know a lot of minds are being changed you know it's like I think it's kind of, you know, like we both grew up punk and I don't, I don't know if this is, I I know that at least in the sector of punk I was in, social justice was woven into that. That was just part of like the straight edge hardcore thing was like, you do Funat bombs, you do anti-racist action, like you do this and you learn about this political thing, learn about this political thing. And it was one of those things where I always wished everyone else knew the thing I knew. And now it feels like a moment where because of how media has been and whatever, like people can just go and watch this Ava DuVernay like documentary about prisons and have a kind of a baseline understanding of what everyone's talking about. And it's very easy and it's very accessible. And sometimes it's free and they like media has caught up where people can educate themselves on a concept really fast. And so if we come out of this and all these people, you know, some of them fade away, but a lot of them are kind of radicalized in this way. Hopefully right, they can pay that the, forward. But also the disinformation can happen just as fast, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, people get locked into their media streams, you know, and, uh, you know, they don't really want to see, you know, there's, there's this whole cancel culture thing that on one hand is funny, but on the other hand it's like, oh, well, you know, that could backfire, you know. It's like every day somebody's getting canceled. And also, like, I think I, I, thought, I said this before you started recording, but it's like, it's just amazing. And this time, you know, if I were to see like the whole city on fire, you know, and somebody die, like a snuff film from a cop, you know, and like have all the stuff going yeah. down and what, how this people are reacting to it. Why would I choose this time to, to, to uh, share my contrary view to the situation? You know, it's just like, well, Hey, why is it, why is it like all these people are like, why is it all about black people? It was like, like, oh my God, like, why did you choose this time to do that? Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. On today's show, producer Chris and I mention a town called Vanport. Vanport is a part of Oregon's history that a lot of people don't know about. Um, A reason it may not be 
widely talked about is it happened a long time ago and it involves a lot of racism and classism on the part of Oregon and Oregonians. I did a comic about this a long time ago. It was co-written by Ed Washington, a man who lived through Vanport, and journalist Sarah Merck. Ed Washington was a civil rights leader and a member of the Portland NAACP. In 1991, he became the first African-American counselor for the Portland Metro Council. A lot of the narration in this comic is by him, and some of the other narration and all the reporting was by Sarah Merck. I illustrated it, and you can see the illustrations. You could even look at them as you hear me read it right now on my Patreon page for free, patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges. Okay, here's a comic about Vanport. During World War II, Vanport was the second biggest city in Oregon. 35,000 people in 1943, can you believe it? And 16,000 of them African-American, three times as many black people as lived in all of Portland before the war. And then, just five years later, it didn't exist at all. Vanport was washed straight off the map. Ed Washington says, My four brothers, my sister, my mother, and I moved out here from Birmingham in 1944 when I was seven. We came on a train, all six of us. My dad had gotten here two years earlier to work in the Kaiser shipyard. The people who were coming out here were poor people. There were just as many poor white people as poor black people, all working. So many people came west for shipyard jobs that the city ran out of housing. People were sleeping in their cars, but they were making good money. Portland had never been welcoming to black people. Oregon didn't legally allow black people to move here until 1927. Through the 1950s, the Portland Board of Realtors redlined the whole city, refusing to sell homes to African Americans outside the Albina neighborhood. So Kaiser petitioned the federal government to build the nation's largest federal housing project just north of Portland city limits. The first residents moved in on December 12, 1942, two days after my birthday. Vanport had thousands of units, plus a movie theater, five schools, a library, and a police station. Ed Washington says, It was just a house. It had a combination kitchen, living room, two bedrooms, an icebox, a hot plate. It wasn't a dump. When you would look down a row of units, you would just see lines of them, all the same. As a kid, it was very easy to get lost. You had to remember your unit number. I think ours was 715. Vanport was nothing but fun for kids, says Ed Washington. Every neighborhood had a recreation center, and each center was filled with stuff to keep their kids busy while their parents worked. We spent a lot of time around the slough, looking for tad the slough, looking for tadpoles and bullfrogs. You build forts, you play baseball. If your parents worked the swing shift, someone else would look after you until they got home at 11 o'clock. Workers were on shift 24 hours a day, helping Oregon shipbuilding yards build 455 ships during the war. We were mostly all people of the same income level, working class people, all working class people bringing working class ideas. Vanport wasn't supposed to be segregated. Federal rules banned that, but in reality, the unit blocks were assigned overwhelmingly to either all white people or all black people. Ed Washington says, You knew the black neighborhoods and the white neighborhoods. Meadows and Cottonwood, those were the black neighborhoods. This was not the South, and blacks did not feel compelled to adhere to the same rules here as they had in the South. There were still issues in Oregon, but they were free. In April 1944, the Housing Authority of Portland, HAP, which ran Vanport, started assigning more black people to white neighborhoods and vice versa. 
63 white residents signed a petition demanding the housing authority reverse course. But Vanport was a pioneer of integration in Oregon. The state's first black policemen were hired in Vanport during the war years. The first black teacher in Portland Public Schools taught there too. When the war ended, population dropped by half. Ed's family stayed, though his family left and found a job in LA. Then, in 1948, there was a tremendous snowfall in the mountains. In the spring, the kids and parents could tell the Columbia was running high. Everyone knew there was a threat of a flood. People started leaving Vanport, walking up the river just to see how high the water was. All that stood between Vanport and the swelling river was a row of dikes and the swampy slough. A Memorial Day, a Sunday, Ed woke up to find a notice from the housing authority on his doorstep. Remember, dikes are safe at present. You will be warned if necessary. You will have time to leave. Don't get excited. My mother and I were on our way up to see the river at about three o'clock and the sirens go off. My mother didn't believe anything was going on. There was no water anywhere. The policeman said, I think you folks better get out of here as fast as you can. A dike has broken. We ran home and my mom packed a little bag, just some important papers and a change of underwear for each of us kids. Ed ran up the hill to the edge of Vanport with his brothers and sister and mother. Dozens of other families were there, too, looking down at the town. Ed said, Mother, dear, I saw this huge wall of water. His mom said, No, you didn't. Ed replied, Yes, I did, Mother. Yes, I did. A wall of water came right in. The units were swirling, not at a thunderous speed, but they were floating and people were up on the roofs. Ed didn't see anybody drown or anything like that. He just saw houses everywhere. Ed says, we went to a school and stayed there overnight. Then we moved to a church on Russell. For kids, it was just another adventure. It was your parents who were going through hell. Everything we owned was gone, except for what my mother got in the bag. Many African-Americans just left town, but many also moved to Portland proper, making the city more diverse and integrated. It was rare for an African-American family to be able to get a loan outside of Albina, though. It took Ed's family two years to finally move back into a real house. It was on Cook Street, right in the heart of the neighborhood. Ed says, I graduated from high school in 1956, married in 1959, and that was pretty much it. So that's the Vanport Flood comic. I did it as an Oregon history project for the Dill Pickle Club. Again, you can see a free version of this on my Patreon site, patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy today's episode with producer Chris.